0: Hello and welcome to Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We have a great lineup of guests for you to enjoy this season. So we ask you to share this podcast on your social media, with your friends and family, and of course, give us a like and leave a review. Hope you guys enjoy the season. This season is sponsored by Summit Marketing, Sure Construction, and WPO Development. Thank you for being such great supporters of Captain's Corner. Today on the podcast, we have pastor and author, Dr. Stephen Elliott.
1: Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida, and I am excited to have on today somebody who's had a great influence on me, but I just met him face-to-face over Zoom a few minutes ago, and that is Dr. Steve Elliott, who is the Director of Pastoral Ministries and Church Planning, degree programs at Kingswood University in New Brunswick, Canada, and he also serves as the Superintendent for the Wesleyan Church across the T- across, I almost said across Tampa, across Canada. We are so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome to Captain's Corner, Steve.
2: Well, thank you very much. and delighted to be here.
1: Well, our team at the Tampa Salvation Army Church read your book, By Signs and Wonders, How, to, How the Holy Spirit Grows the Church um, last fall. And it was a wonderful experience for us. That led us to have a series on the Holy Spirit and Then also to find new ways that we can incorporate some of the things that you talk about in your book. But part of what makes it so powerful is it's your own story. And you come from a similar theological tradition as the Salvation Army. And likely some of the same, because we come from the same tradition that was founded about the same time, maybe some of the same trappings uh, that might hold us back from an openness to the Spirit's work. So I'm very excited to have this conversation today and just to hear what led you to uh, uh, on this journey? So could you tell us a little bit about the background of this book?
2: Sure, I'd be delighted to. So I planted with my wife um, a church in the city of Ottawa, which is a capital city in Canada, in 1983. We started with just the two of us. Okay. Uh, two other people that were living in our area, but they were going to another church. So it was literally just the two of us. Right. And uh, the Lord prospered, and we we grew very slowly. We were growing at about ten or fifteen people per year, for the first fourteen years that they were there, we were there. Um, but uh, around the year thirteen fourteen, I, I was quite frustrated that we were we had only grown at that point from the two up to about one hundred and thirty or so, and I knew that we were living far far below our potential and what God really wanted us to do. Uh, God would give me a a vision of what it was that he wanted us to accomplish, which is to be responsible for one out of every 10 people in, in the particular neighborhood that we were, that we were in. Right. Right. So the neighborhood was much, much larger than what we were impacting. And it was the neighborhood was growing much faster than the church was. And so as a percentage of the community, we were actually getting smaller rather than larger in our community. And so uh, in 1996, uh, we took the board away on a retreat. And we only had one question that we asked at that board retreat. It's what's hindering us from fulfilling the vision that God has given us. And everything was on the table. I said that if it's me and my leadership style or anything about me, then I was willing to resign because I just so desperately wanted to see people come to faith in Christ and right. people be matured in, in their, their walk with God. The vast majority of our growth that had taken place in those early 13 or 14 years was all transfer growth. There was very, very few conversions. Uh, we were just swapping fish back and forth rather than being fishers of men. Wow. And so um, we, we were really not impacting our community for good and for God the way that we wanted. And so we went away on this retreat, and we are trying to figure out what was hindering uh, the work of God in our midst. And out of that retreat, we identified about six or seven things that we felt were serious limitations to our ability to impact the community on behalf of God. One of which was that our evangelism efforts was very, very meager. um, Mm. to uh, To put the best spin on it possible, to say it was meager. Um, And yet we were doing everything I'd ever been trained in. I was doing door-to-door. I never stopped doing door-to-door. Wow. Uh, We are doing literature distribution, track distribution. We taught our lay people how to share their faiths. We did uh, crusades. We brought in evangelists. We did um, uh, outreaches at the mall, Easter musicals, and we were trying to advertise to the unsafe community. Uh, But we were just not penetrating the gospel into the community. And so, out of that uh, came uh, a real desire to understand why what we were experiencing was not in any shape or form resembling what we see in in the New Testament. Right. So what we did was we stopped all of our evangelism efforts. Like we stopped um, mailing out invitations to the community and and radio broadcasts. And any every if anything, we we stopped it all. And I did a biblical study, and I looked at every story in the New Testament where it said that somebody became a follower of Christ, mm-hmm. or their faith in Jesus, something that would indicate that somebody was uh, had come to faith in Christ. And out of that study, um, there were probably two or three things that I probably could have told you ahead of time, right? Um, but there were two stunning things that absolutely floored me when I discovered it in the scripture. So, if we think of it as a pyramid, I'll go from the bottom up. So, one of the things that was a factor in the conversion stories is that the church was praying. Hmm. Um, they were praying that God would open doors of opportunity. They were praying um, for, that God would prosper the missions, work of Paul and people of that nature. And so, the church was a praying church, and I could have told you that. Uh, the second thing was that um, the Holy Spirit was working. He was giving gifts of evangelism to people. He was opening doors of opportunity, which, you know, people were asking that the Spirit of God would do. And Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws them. So the Holy Spirit was working. The third thing was that believers were usable and available. It's kind of like the Old Testament here am I, send me type of a thing. And so they were the type of people that God could use. And so I think I could have told you those even before I'd done my study. But the first thing that shocked me in my study was how prevalent miracle signs and wonders were in the conversion stories, uh, at least, and this is the minimum, at least 50% of the conversion stories have a miracle that just took place either to the person or in plain view of the person. So the clearest example of that would be the raising of Lazarus. Right, um, And we know the story, Lazarus has been dead. He's in the tomb. Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, Jesus says, roll away the stone, they say, Lord, he stink us, and and you know the rest of the story. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. He comes out of the tomb, and the very last verse in that story says, and many put their faith in him. Yeah. Well, duh, you know, if I just saw a dead guy come back right. to life, I put my faith in him as well. So I had no idea that miracle science and wonders and the miraculous was so prevalent in the conversion stories. The fifth factor was that somebody articulated a clear presentation of the gospel message. And so, you know, we're getting down to not just having a spiritual conversation, but we're getting down to the essence of, a, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So, you have to bring up sin and repentance and confession and faith and surrender and the cross and the blood of Christ. Somebody articulated a very clear presentation of the gospel. Yeah. And I could have probably told you that one as well. But the sixth factor, factor, the one that really blew me out of the water, was what was not present in these conversion stories. And that was lifestyle and friendship evangelism. Lifestyle and friendship evangelism only accounts for less than 1% of the conversion stories in the New Testament. Now, it is present. There's a few places where it's present. For instance, in Peter, where it says that if a, a saved wife as an yeah. unsubstant husband, he can be won over without talk by the behavior of his wife. Right. And so it's not that it's a non-factor. It's just that it's so infrequently mentioned as right. a contributing factor. The truth of the matter is, is that the vast majority of people who came to faith in Jesus did not even know the speaker. Wow. So there was no way that that the person's lifestyler um, was... Even substantiating their message, like Paul goes into Ephesus, he's never even been there before. They have no yeah. clue in the world whether or not, you know, his lifestyle backs right, up. Right, sure. It I mean. It's so interesting.
1: Let me, let me stop. Can I stop me for a second and j- jump mm-hmm. back? I, I just want to highlight something that I think is really distinct, is that when you're looking at those first 13 years of ministry in this community that's growing, I'm impressed that God gave you the wisdom to say, this isn't working because in in our tr- in, in the Salvation Army tradition, look, at, uh, if you added ten people for thirteen years, it's one hundred and thirty people. You would just have one of the largest Salvation Army corps in a given division, probably the largest. You know, in the United States, I don't know this about Canada because we have a really strong work in Newfoundland that's like very substantial, almost like was one of the largest denominations in that. But um, it's certain I can speak about America. I think there are um less than 10 congregations larger than 200 people on a Sunday morning. And I would say there's, there's one that's fairly large here in Clear, Clearwater. It's when the snowbirds come down, it's larger than 350. Um, in our congregation, pre-COVID, we've been about 175, um, but no, none larger than 400. Now, I'm not saying that that exists, that that's a sign of success, or not but what i'm what i want to highlight for you is like well probably even within the wesleyan church that 130 150 might feel successful but i love love it that you were able to say we're not actually succeeding with the gospel penetrating our community i think that's a helpful place to start it's kind of like an alcoholic saying i have to admit i'm an alcoholic I must admit, we're not reaching the community. Do you want to comment on that before I go on? I want, I want to get back to the friendship evangelism in a second. but
2: Sure. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, church, health, growth, and leadership, that's my area of expertise. And I know that the average size church, no matter what denomination, is running someplace around 75 to 90 yeah. of, of, across all denominations in North America. And so our church of 130 or so was considered by some to be a success, but it didn't feel that way. Wow. Um, Because I knew that most of the people that were coming to us were coming from a Nazarene or a Free Methodist or Brethren in Christ or Missionary Alliance. I mean, it was just a transfer of believers amongst uh, the denominations. It wasn't really seeing conversion growth. And so this holy dissatisfaction within me that we just were not seeing hardly anybody come to faith in Christ as as a first-time Christian um, really, really bothered me. And so as I began analyzing it, I discovered that what we were experiencing is the norm um, that the, the dominant form of evangelism that's, that's used in North America is lifestyle or friendship evangelism. Absolutely.
1: You can hear people Barna, preach on it on a regular I mean, people say, live your life. And then by doing that, somebody will come. But you show pretty clearly, like, it's not the biblical model. And even when it happens in real life, it doesn't work that well.
2: It doesn't. It doesn't. The evidence is overwhelming Hmm. that does not work very well. Uh, Barna says that 83 percent of Christians the only form of evangelism they ever use is lifestyle evangelism or friendship evangelism, where they think that if they live some type of a good and godly life and they're nice to the neighbors and they don't kick somebody's cat and they owe their (laughs) coffee to their coworker, that somehow that that will open up an opportunity to share the gospel. It's just not true. It's, I mean, it does happen a little tiny bit uh, in about 1% of the time, but um, the research is just overwhelming when you begin studying this thing. 1% of Christians share their faith annually. Wow. Annually. Now, I'm not talking about like having a spiritual conversation. I'm not talking about, oh, I'll pray for you when you say that to your neighbor or something like that. I'm talking about getting down to the essentials of the gospel message. 1% actually share their faith in the course of the year. And in an entire lifetime, only 5% of Christians ever lead somebody to the Lord.
1: Mm.
2: Now, imagine if that was true in the book of Acts, that only 1% of the people in the upper room shared their faith. Right, right. Or only 5% of them ever led somebody to the Lord. Right. Where would where would the, the Christian faith be So, clearly, there was something radically different about how they were operating. Um, The the persuasive factor in most of these conversion stories was the fact that there's a God who can suspend all natural laws. Mm. uh, These power encounters where God shows himself to be superior to their pagan beliefs or actually blows their worldview totally apart by what it is that he can do. And so we began leaning very slowly and very carefully because, like you, we're kind of Wesleyan theology, and, and we, we, we know what all the implications of that. But as I continued to uh, do my research, I discovered that we are the anomaly. Wow. John Wesley, yeah, in sure. his ministry, actively used Miracle signs, and Wonders, and they were so common. Look, I had often wondered... Really, these thousands of people come to hear John Wesley preach? Was he that good of a (laughs) preacher? And was Charles Wesley such an amazing musician that that it accounts for these thousands and thousands of people coming out to these services and being uh, changed by the gospel? Well, when, when you actually dig into it and read his journals and you read all the accompanying literature about Wesley's ministry, Signs and Wonders... Were prevalent in in his ministry. That's why the thousands of people came. As a matter of fact, there's there's one letter that was written um, by a fellow that was writing about Wesley, and he said that um, if Wesley did not see evidence of the miraculous in his services, he would stop the church service and say, "Lord, where are thy signs and tokens to confirm thy message?" Wow! And the writer of that letter said. That every time he heard Wesley pray that type of prayer, he said immediately the congregation fell on the floor weeping. Wow. Well, it's just like the healing of horses. I mean, the, the stopping of storms. I mean, the, the miracle signs and wonders in his ministry were very prevalent. We're the ones that have deviated from our own heritage. Right. It's, we're, not, we're not living consistently and ministering consistently. Uh, with with how he operated. I've got a book right here, which I know you can't see on the podcast, but I know Andy can see it. It's called Tongue of Fire. Yeah. And Tongue of Fire was written in the 1850s by the general secretary of the Methodist Church in England. And for the first time, the Methodist Church had experienced a downturn in their their, the number of people coming and being part of the societies and all the rest, the number of conversions. And he's trying to figure out what's going on. Why had the Methodist church for the first time in its history experienced a decline? And his conclusion was, is that the Methodist church had stopped putting an emphasis on the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not the first person to use this phrase. And so I don't want to claim this, but um, others way smarter than I have, have said, that the evangelical church is Trinitarian in doctrine. Right. But it's binitarian in practice.
1: All right. That was a convicting line when I read it in your book.
2: Oh my goodness. Yeah. I because I teach at the Bible college here in New Brunswick, I take my students out. We I would typically visit, you know, maybe five or six churches with my students of, of all sizes. And so we're I'm out frequently with our students visiting churches all over the place. And I'm here to tell you. That is absolutely right. That although we're Trinitarian, we believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. The Language we use in our churches, we often talk about Jesus, and we often talk about God the Father, but we almost never talk about the Holy Spirit. Right. And so we thought, you know, of the six or seven things that we made note that uh, were deficiencies in our in our ministries. Um, that was, if you asked me, what was the one biggie that. Absolutely turned our ministry around. Uh, it was be the emphasis on the personal work of the Holy Spirit. So we were about 130, and a few years later, we're just nicely breaking through a thousand in attendance. Um, because and I and I say it's because of the emphasis that we put on the personal work of the Holy Spirit.
1: Wow! And, and I want to just highlight historically what you said there about the Tongues of Fire book. Um, 1850s, uh, William and Catherine Booth were serving in the Methodist New Connection in England at that time. And this, and lest anybody think like, "Oh, this isn't the Salvation Army way." Well, it's probably just not the Salvation Army way from the Salvation Army that you've experienced in your life. In um, and, and the early Army, um, you'll you'll read of. Uh, of, they often call it half nights of prayer or whole nights of prayer. And they they didn't have the same terms that we would use to describe them since the charismatic renewal, but very physical outward expressions of of healings, of people ecstatically expressing things, of, of conviction of sin. Um, a lot of, I mean, just so this was a part of our Heritage as well, kind of recognizing that um, and the role of the spirit. I, l- I love that emphasis that you have, like saying that, even just saying it like binetarian practice. Boy, that was something that we just had to wrestle with. And like, how much room in a, even our program in our programming are we leaving? For the Spirit, so <clears throat> so that's what you found. Like you were able to say it was it was this, this friendship evangelism isn't working. But what happens in Scripture is it's this the role and the work of the Spirit coming in and using signs and wonders to accompany His presence. And to tell me some of the things then that that you're able to do. Like I'm not interested in just growing to have a thousand people. I'm interested in people being in having an encounter with the living God. Like that's what I want by the power of the Holy Spirit. So. Uh, th- th- this gets to a place like, a, what type of practices did you put in place that made this happen?
2: Thank you for asking. That's a great question. Like I said, we, we started pretty slow because uh, I was very, very nervous. And this was a major departure from um, anything that I had ever seen or experienced in my growing up years. And I'm fourth generation Wesleyan. And so I I, mean, I went to a Wesleyan Bible College. I went to Asbury Theological Seminary. I mean, I... I'm pretty steeped in in, uh, in Methodist tradition, and I had never seen anything like what, what I'm seeing in scripture. And so we just leaned very heavily into it. We started um, making room in our worship services for praying for people and asking for God's healing upon them. And we quickly learned um, the important difference between pronouncing healing on people okay. as opposed to requesting healing. Okay. And that's, it's one of the, one of the places I feel pretty strongly about is that we're not here to tell God what to do, but he does say to present your requests unto God. Yes. Um, and so we, we would pray and anoint people with oil. We trained our altar workers um, to, to how to do it appropriately. And so we would start carving out time in our worship services uh, for um, inviting people if they had physical ailments to come forward and we're going to pray for you and, um, we did things like start including quiet times in our services um, where we'd just be silent for like a minute in the service and we'd ask God to speak to people. And we would we would tell the congregation, would say, God doesn't just speak to clergy, he doesn't Hi. just speak to officers, like he wants to speak to all of his children. And so, we would get quiet just for um, like a minute and like this, like Samuel, speak Lord for your servant is listening and asking God to speak to people. And people, lo and behold, started hearing from God. And sometimes it would be like a word of knowledge where God would reveal something that is presently true that they shouldn't know is true. Wow. Or or it might be something that's a little bit more prophetic, something that's future true uh, that they should not be able to know. And we learned we had to manage that kind of stuff because people said outrageous things that were just crazy. Like I did have one person come to me one time and say, God told me that there's going to be six nuclear bombs go off in the United States on a particular day. Wow. <laughs> there was nothing within me that resonated that that was right. true. Well, I
1: and appreciate so- that, what you just said there, because that was that's always been my fear. It's like, and this is, I'm, I'm sorry to say, like I and I've confessed this, that the paralysis I've experienced is because I couldn't, um, I was afraid something bad would happen. But you had a just real simple thing, like, just like for people to come and share with you what they're going to share... And and just to have a sense in your spirit, rather than not need to be shared. and that, as a spiritual leader of your congregation, you're able to do that. And I, I found that incredibly liberating. I'm kind of I feel like I'm hitting my head. Like, why didn't I? And I could see how it's been limiting. And so we we've done what you've said. And I, I want to do it more. It's just like letting people. Does anybody have something they'd like to share? You know, as as we've opened it up and just have a quiet period. So so when you do that, you just is is it. I think you had said in the book, you just like let people come to you and then you discern if that's something that should be shared with the congregation.
2: So, I mean, we, we made the mistakes in the early days of just letting anybody say anything. And we soon learned that we needed to vet that. And so what we would say um, later on, as we learned how to manage this type of thing is that if you've got anything positive to say from, from God, then you're free to share that. However, if it's anything that has to do with a rebuke or a warning or anything, disastrous. Uh, you need to clear it with uh, one of the pastoral staff first. And we told people that God places pastors over congregations, and one of their jobs is to shepherd the flock. It's to it's to protect the flock. And so, it's my job um, as under God is to protect the flock. And so, if people bring me a word and I don't discern that it's true, then this is on me. Mm-hmm. This is on protect the flock. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong before God. But the person that has shared it with me, they've, they've absolved themselves of responsibility. If they think that God gave them something to share, they've shared it with somebody in a position of, of authority, but then it's on me uh, if I happen to be wrong and whether or not to release that or not to release it. Uh, we also started leaning much more heavily into extended times of worship okay. and prayer and fasting, Okay. Um, One of my very dear friends who hears incredibly accurate from God, like eerie accurately from God, like God gives him specific names, places and situations that he couldn't possibly know. I've known this guy for years and I know he's not a fraud. Um, I said to him one day, I said, how do you hear so accurately from God? Yeah. And he said, God speaks to me in my times of worship, my, my personal times of worship when I'm adoring on God and worshiping him and thanking him and praising him. And it was one of those times that I heard something and it just resonated true that mm. you know, there's reasons why Jesus went alone up into the mountains, mm. alone. Now it's in those times of, of private communion with communion with God that God speaks to people. And so uh, we started having extended evenings, either a Wednesday night or a Saturday night, no preaching, uh, but we might be an hour and a half. We might be two hours of just quietly listening for, to God, um, quiet worship, uh, reading scripture, um, sharing words of testimony—just things that would adore on God mm. and be, and we would be quiet before Him. We passed out a ton of literature on the great revivals of the past, so that especially our leaders would know whether or not what we're starting to pursue is this consistent with how God has worked in the past. If you read anything of the Finneys and Jonathan Edwards and their stories, this is how revival came. Mm. Now there there are exceptions, um, but but the majority of times when you look at the Welsh revivals and uh, what happened with the Wesleys and the, the uh, Great Awakening up the East Coast, these times are all almost always marked by God working miraculously with healings and um, visions and dreams and words of knowledge and all that, that type of thing. So we made sure that as best that we could, what we were trying to pursue is seriously grounded in scripture and seriously grounded in what, how God has historically worked. And we're not just going off in some wild tangent. And we, and as I said, we had to rein in a ton of stuff. You know, I had to be a leader and I had to say no on all kinds of stuff. Yeah. As a, as a small example, I'm not a flag waver. Okay. (laughs) I'm a pretty quiet individual, and I find flag-waving actually distracting to my worship. Okay. And we had some flag-wavers in the church, and they wanted to wave flags around the front of the church. And I found it tremendously distracting to worship. So I had to tell them, I said, you're welcome to wave flags, but you got to do it in the back That's corner.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> you can't be doing it up front, because there's just way too many people that find it distracting. And, you know, I wasn't very popular. They They wanted to... Express their, their worship to God in that way, but um, as a shepherd of the flock, I've got to look out for the whole flock. That's
1: I right, just, and you're a part of that flock too. Yeah. I am. This episode of Captain's Corner is sponsored by the Bed and Bread Club. The Salvage Army Bed and Bread Club helps provide food for those who are hungry and shelter for those with nowhere else to turn. You can join for as little as $10 each month. Your reoccurring gifts will pair with those who are our current members to ensure that the Bed and Bread Club can continue to be a sustainable solution to hunger and homelessness in our community. Interested? Contact the Salvation Army of Tampa at 813-226-0055 to sign up. Be a part of something greater. Join the Bed and Bread Club today. And our thanks to Summit Marketing for helping us put this plan together. God bless you. the the whole desire that led to do this was to reach more people for Christ, particularly those who were not Christians. And not not just like jumping a denomination when they come into the neighborhood providing for the broad pan Wesleyan community. Like that's, you wanted to, so is that what happened? Like did new people come to Christ? Is that how you got to the thousand?
2: I'm really glad you're asking that. And the answer is an absolute yes. The vast majority of new people that joined us after 1997, when we started emphasizing the personal work of the Holy Spirit, the vast majority were unchurched people. Mm. One of the ways that God manifests himself, and I think all of our hearers that, that are listening to this podcast would, can identify with this. We've all been in church services at times where we have that sense of awe at the presence of God. Yeah. A palatable pre- pre- sense that the presence of God is here where you don't even hardly want to move out of fear that you're going to do something to disturb what the spirit of God is doing in that time, in that place. Yes. That would be the primary way that God manifest himself in our church after 1997. Okay. it's This holy sense of the presence of God. We got worse at advertising, but more people started coming to us because they felt drawn to the church in Unmistakable and unusual ways. Our church is located right on the highway, directly across the street from where the Ottawa Senators play hockey. Okay, like we're a vi- very visible church okay. uh, in the area. And people would tell me they would. I would be at the front door greeting as people came to church, and people would say, um, "I don't know why I'm here today." Interesting. I'm driving by on the highway, and I just felt like I need to go to church. Wow. Now, that's not because we had good signage, right. of fact, signage was really bad, huh. um, but it was this drawing influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, I remember the mayor of our city came, um, the, the, the suburb is called Canada, where I was pastoring. The mayor came one Sunday and she was bringing greetings. It was probably like an anniversary service, I don't remember. But after the time of worship, she came up to the pulpit and she said, Um, she said, there's a, there's a, there's an an energy in this place. Mm. She didn't even have the vocabulary to describe that what she was feeling with the Holy Spirit. Wow. But she could sense it. And so this palatable sense of the presence of God, that God is near, the sense of the holy, um, That was probably the primary way that God manifests himself. We did have some healings. We had some really remarkable healings. My wife's best friend was healed of aggressive breast cancer. Okay. Uh, We've got, you know, the documentation. We had the, you know, the x-rays beforehand and afterwards that showed that she had very aggressive breast cancer. And then then it was totally gone. And so there was some of that kind of stuff. There was some healings of uh, some problems with people's hands and, you know, different things of that nature. Um, Lots of words of knowledge, um, some prophetic type things, um, saw some exorcism, saw some people being delivered from demonic uh, presence. Um, But that sense of the holy presence of God would be the primary way that God showed up in our midst. Wow. And and the persuasive influence of it is just, it pales anything that we do on our own in comparison. You know, I, I am not interested in... In growing a church with balloons and smoke, dry uh-huh. smoke machines, and clever excellence and you know that kind of stuff. Although I'm not against it, right, right. It just can't be a substitute for the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: I love that when, when you walk through it. My um, my family planted a Salvation Army church outside of the Chicago area in Des Plaines, um, and so I a lot of the things you were trying and things that you do. Like I, I grew up in that that same time period, and trying to, you know, have these different techniques through Sunday school growth campaigns and all kinds of things. Like, it it all was very familiar. And I I admit, and I'm I'm sure this was the case for you too, incredibly sincere, like, incredibly connected to the mission of God in the world. At the same time, it just, I think we, like I said, I'm not not being critical of the 1,200 Salvation Army churches in the United States, but that's, that seems to be an issue, if, issue for us. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm raising my hand as the, the chief sinner in that. Like I'm the, I'm one who has, I mean, I, I like to think of myself a good preacher. I imagine you're a good preacher. And I thought, well, if I could just get it to get in here and, and preach well and, Talk about the Salvation Army and the community and do, use some of these techniques that, that we're going to grow. And the truth is, we, everywhere we've been, we have grown marginally in the same type of way you have, maybe 10 to 15 people a year, sometimes more, sometimes less. But what I know people are, and what you've helped me with with your book, and it's so nice to see you face-to-face and hear, talk to you, is that what I really want for people at the heart of that is I want them to get to know Jesus. You know, and I want the Holy Spirit to be at work, and and whenever we've when we've made room for that, and and it hasn't always led to clear manifestations of the Spirit, but if, since we even since reading your book, but there have been some extremely memorable periods where I know that if somebody was there, and if when somebody, of course, COVID has changed some of this, and we've, we we have had a great response even online, um, that that's what people long for. And that's what I want people to have.
2: Primary reason people go to church is to encounter God. Amen. And if they come week after week and they don't encounter the presence of God, they get discouraged and disillusioned and stop coming. Hmm. That's the primary reason why churches experience numerical decline. It's because people are not encountering the God of the universe. Wow. You know, God. Moses said something really interesting when, you know, after the Ten Commandments and the people rebelled, and you know they had to grind up the the thing, the the altar, the, the gold thing, and and anyway. Yeah, yeah. God said to the to Moses, He said, um, He said, "You go on." He said, "I'm going to send my angel um, with you, but I am no longer going to go with you." And Moses had a coronary on the spot, I mean, figuratively speaking. And he said, "Yeah, if you don't go with us, don't send. what else would distinguish us from all the other peoples of the earth? Wow. The distinguishing characteristic of the church is the presence of God. Amen. Like, there's lots of the Rotary Club and the Kiwanis, they've all got the same thing we got. We got, you know, building and programs and finances and... Sing every-
1: songs. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean... We, we've, but the thing that sets the church apart is the presence of God. Amen. And when the presence of God is not felt or not acknowledged, um, then we're living so far below what God has for us. Amen. The primary attracting and transforming influence in our midst has got to be the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Yes.
1: I'm so I, I I love hearing you say this. I want I want to tell you what all we've done. I want if, if you could just even give us some more advice for what else we can do. Um, so we we had a series on the Holy Spirit. We took that from your recommendation. We used Gordon Fee's book, uh, um, as kind of a guide through that. And then so that was like six or seven weeks. And we had a healing service. We had times where now like every week we try to do something where there's an openness to spirit. Maybe it's a a period of testimony or a period of, of prayer where people can share. Um, And then, and then once a month we've had a healing service where we anoint people with oil. That's kind of not something that I've grown up with in the Salvation Army. Um, I'm not saying other Salvation Armies don't do it, but it's just new. And so um, that's what we've, that's what we started to do. I'm curious if there's other, anything else you'd recommend for us to do, particularly considering we come from a similar tradition.
2: Yeah. Um, there's an author, his name is Mark Wilson. Okay. And he wrote a book, Purple Fishing, which is such a weird title for a book. Sure. Purple Fishing by Mark Wilson. And in that, he talks about um, one of the strategies that their church employed was that bringing people together during the weekday, so some week evening or something like, like Wednesday night or something like that, for a time of worship and prayer and fasting, and then sending the people out in groups of two, asking the Lord to direct them to somebody that God is working on. God's already prompted somebody's heart and it's, it's, it's kind of cooperating or fishtailing um, on what God is already doing in people's lives. And so the people will go out and somebody will get an impression, you know, that person over there, the total stranger at the mall, you know, at a yeah. not shop, whatever the person just gets a sense, that person over there is really discouraged. And I think God wants me to go pray for them. Wow! And so would walk over and say, I don't mean to be weird about this, but I think God just asked me to come and pray for you because I think God just told me that you're going through a really hard time or you're really discouraged or, or something. And the sensitivity to the prompts of God, like in the immediate intentionally making themselves available to go and hear from God and to interact with people. Um, can be a very effective um, natural expression of what it is that we're talking about because they're trying to hear from God right. not that we hear perfectly from God right you know we make mistakes but at least trying to hear uh, what God may be saying to us in that moment
1: yeah oh that's great now uh, also we, we we tried to re-educate ourselves from scripture about the nature of speaking in tongues and we've we have a we have a tradition an ecclesial tradition that doesn't use that, and um, well, and there was like in the 1980s, like a charismatic renewal that um, had some abuses. That and the savage Army took stands against that, um, and probably some wrongly, probably it probably did it in wrong ways, probably in some correct ways uh, at times. I was I was just a boy, so I don't really remember what was going on in that period. But so we tried to do some teaching on that, and I've expressed like if somebody has. Uh, something that to share in a tongue, like we, and if there, there should be a terp- interpreter as well, um, we're open to that. And it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I don't know if it's just we're so we're kind of like emotionally blocked from that happening, but we're trying to demonstrate an openness to this since this is a spiritual gift.
2: Yeah. So uh, let me answer that. Not as an official of the Wesleyan Church, I'm just going to talk as as a child of God to another child of God. I, I'm Those listening. Are... Yeah. Um, I actually agree with the Wesleyan position on speaking in tongues and and discouraging it in the public worship services. Um, And the Apostle Paul says much the same in Corinthians. He talks about, I'd rather speak, you know, 10 intelligible words than a bunch of words that nobody understands. But my primary difficulty with speaking in tongues is that, and I've grown up hearing tongue speaking since the 70s when I was a teenager and Uh, the charismatic movement, the vast majority of times when I hear people speaking in tongues and it's interpreted, the interpretation goes something like this. I, the everlasting God, love you with an everlasting love, and I'm about to do a new thing in your midst, or something like that, right? The problem with that is that 1 Corinthians 14.1 says clearly that speaking in tongues is not God speaking to people, right. it's people speaking to God. Right, right. And so, when you actually analyze both the, the day of Pentecost, you know, we hear men declaring the praises of God. Hmm. Uh, is this a form of evangelism, or were they overhearing people extolling the virtues of God? God, you are holy. God, you are just. God, you are merciful. God, you are eternal. Um And in that 1 Corinthians 14 passage as well, it talks about later on that when the interpretation is given, that these are words of of thanksgiving and praise to God. Mm. So, I think one of the hesitancies in a lot of evangelical churches about tongue speaking is that it has been misused. It's been used to deliver messages from God that are not verifiable. Mm. But if tongue speaking is speaking to God words of adoration, worship, and praise, and there's an interpretation, then it can be evaluated. So, if somebody said in their tongue speaking, God, you're holy and wonderful, and we thank you that you created Jesus, yeah, we go, wait a sec, <laughs> Jesus is a created being, yeah. you know, he's a second person of, of the Trinity, and so we, we can bring correction to that. But it's very hard to bring correction when somebody is purporting to speak on behalf of God. And so, um, tongue speaking, to my understanding, is actually speaking to God, words of adoration, praise, and thanksgiving, not delivering a message from God. And so, when when that became clear in my mind, and I'm absolutely convinced I'm right on that, um, it cleared up for me why a lot of evangelical churches... Have been hesitant to allow tongue speaking because it's so many times it's people purporting to speak on behalf of god which first corinthians 14 1 clearly says it's not
1: yeah yeah that's great it's so, very helpful um mm-hmm. e- e- i didn't know this until i emailed you um and it's fairly out of the blue i'd be curious to um You've uh, the book has had some been effective and God's using it, but you've developed some of the resources to go with it. Could you tell us about that and maybe t- um, tell people where they can get the book and that kind of thing? I would I would love for this have a wider impact because it certainly has impacted my life and leadership.
2: Sure. Well, it's available on Amazon, but uh, the publisher is actually an American publisher. It's Seedbed Publishing, which is near Nashville. And um, not only is the book available, um, but there's also a DVD or an online. Videos that go with them—they're like TED talks for each chapter. And so, what a lot of churches have done is they, they they buy some books for a small group study or for the leadership team, and they also get the DVDs or the online videos. And the each each um, each chapter of the of the videos sets up what's coming in the next chapter of the book. And in addition, it's not just highlighting it. There's a whole bunch of additional materials. And some interviews that are in the in the videos as well of some pastors and churches that have leaned more heavily into the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I, I've known Baptist churches that are that are cessationists that don't believe that there's anything miraculous that's happened since the time of the apostles. That uh, that God has used this book to completely change their mind. Praise the Lord. Just so humble that God would ever, in any way, shape, or form, choose to use uh, this little book. And so, anyways,
1: it's... That's great. Well, I'm so glad that there's these things available, and um, it just seems like God gave you these experiences for that community and for the expansion of the gospel there, but also now for a wider expansion. So,
2: we're thankful for that.
1: Are you working on anything new? Is there anything else coming?
2: Oh, thank you for asking, Andy. I've I've actually got three books coming in. Oh, I've got... I've got a book coming out in June through Wesley Press. Um, the working title right now is called The Evolving Church, although that title might change before it gets published. But uh, it's uh, it's showing what changes in the life of a church as it grows. There's okay. the key chapter, chapter 6, which is a, which is 34 charts, and it's showing how, what is different in a small church, a medium-sized church, a mid-sized church, and a large church. So a, a clearest example would be how a pastor – uses his or her time in a small church is very different hmm. than how a pastor in a larger church uses his or her time. How a board functions in a small church is very different. How how they do welcome integration, uh, how they yeah. do evangelism, discipleship. And so it's it's really tracing 34 things that are actually changing in the life of the church. Um, some of your listeners may, may know Gary McIntosh, uh, who's a prolific author on this type of stuff, and he wrote the foreword okay. to the Great. I've got a book. Um, I think it's coming out at Christmas time. Uh, the working title is called "The Rubrics of a Healthy Church: uh, Fifteen Traits of God Honoring uh, and Thriving Churches." Okay. And it it traces the, the the characteristics of churches that are healthy. It's not an issue of church growth. It's are they healthy? So, for instance, the first one is their allegiance to God, His Word, and His mission. Hmm. Um, that would be a trait of a healthy church. Gotcha. And um, uh, Tom Rayner, some people might recognize his name. He wrote the foreword for that book. And then next year, there's a book coming out called The Principles and Practices of Discipleship, The Seven Environments in Which People Grow as a Christian, uh, which uh, is a real challenge. It, it comes out of um, the, uh, the REVEAL study that was done a number of years ago, where uh, they, they looked at under what circumstances do, do Christians actually grow in their faith and the the reveal, start, uh, reveal study started with the premise that if a person was regular attendance to at church, if they are involved in a small group, and if they've got a place of ministry in or through the church, that that person would be growing. And the study revealed that is only true for a young Christian.
1: Hmm.
2: An old Christian going to church, being involved in a small group, and, and serving is not a predictor of whether or not they're growing as a Christian. Huh. The things that do predict whether or not a Christian is growing, an older Christian is growing, is whether or not they're involved in either a mentoring or an accountability group, whether or not they periodically go away on spiritual retreats, like a like a prayer retreat or a marriage retreat, uh, whether or not if they're married, they're involved in family discipleship, and most important of all, whether or not they have a, an active personal devotional life of, of reading scripture, journaling, fasting, um, those type of things. Yeah those those things are the greater predictors of whether or not a Christian, an older Christian, is growing. So it's the principles and practices of discipleship that's coming out next year. So
1: great. That sounds great. Well I'm, I'm thankful thank that you're thank able you to give
2: me a chance to plug books There up you go.
1: Them. Well, I mean, i you came out of the came out of the gates running and with, the, with this great first one. So that makes me interested in what's coming later. So thank you so much, Steve, for your time today and for your influence on us and for taking time to write. I know it's not an easy thing to do, and I'm thankful that you're, you're doing that for the benefit of the global church.
2: Thank you. Can I just uh, add that if any of the listeners ever want to talk to me about this topic, um, my email address is very simple. It's Stephen with a PH, at Wesleyan. Dot C-A. CA stands for Canada. So it's Stephen at Wesleyan.ca. And if there's anybody that ever wants to talk to me about this, um, I would be honored to wow. to do anything I can to be a support to any church that wants to lean a little bit more heavily into the personal work of the Holy Spirit and still be Wesleyan in their
1: theology. Amen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Well, God bless thanks. you. And thanks for joining us on Captain's Corner.
0: Next week on the podcast, we have Major Cam Henderson, Divisional Secretary for Program for the Florida Division of the Salvation Army. If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Tampa, check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.